0: Welcome to Marin Costello Radio, where we have intentional conversations with impactful people, your weekly dose of motivation, inspiration, and entrepreneurship. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of building and running a business, interview leaders across all industries, and find the common denominator beneath it all. This is Marin Costello Radio. You guys, we have such an amazing guest on the show today. Madhavi Gavini is the founder and CEO at Droplet. She's a mathematician by training with degrees from MIT and John Hopkins. No big deal. Prior to founding and inventing Droplet, she developed drug design algorithms using protein structure prediction models based on algebraic topology and invented a class of peptide drugs that were granted the first FDA orphan disease designation for pediatric cardiomyopathy since 1994. More recently, one of the molecules she developed was used by Sandia National Labs as an experimental therapeutic for COVID-associated cardiac and pulmonary damage. Her work has been featured by the American Heart Association and published in both textbooks and journals, including Frontiers, and she has co-authored two book chapters. Madhavi, you are the biggest deal on the planet. (laughs) It is so exciting to have you on the show. Thank you for making time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. What an impressive human. So how is your day going? It's going really well. And I you love work? that. It's great. Thank you for asking. Um, one of the questions that we'd love to ask, because I think it gives a full scope of the folks that we interview on the show, is what was Little Maudy like?
1: Oh gosh, little me was a nerd. Um I wanted to be an astronaut when I grew up probably um up until college and then I found out that I have terrible vision and I'm not tall enough. So I ended up uh <laughs> going into this career instead. But um yeah, very much kind of what you'd expect, um a little bit of a nerdy bookworm.
0: That's amazing. What subjects were you specifically drawn to growing
1: up? Um science, astronomy, um Math to a certain extent, but, uh, very much like wanting to understand how things work and trying to see whether there were, you know, trying to do little experiments and figure out how, how to, how to build things. I think the idea of, of inventing or creating something that's actually useful for people, whether it's a drug or a device was, um, this thing that really excited me when I was a kid. And I grew up in a family of scientists, like my parents are both scientists, um, you know, and, 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 a lot of my aunts and uncles kind of work in STEM as well. So there was a ton of exposure at an early age, which I think really helps drive your development. And, and they were very encouraging of curiosity. And I think I was really, really fortunate in that way. What was your first memory of either inventing something
0: or watching someone in your family experiment with invention?
1: Um, It's a good question. I think, so, okay, so my dad was is a like plant geneticist by training. And I think the thing that drove him for most of his career was wanting to solve this fundamental problem in agriculture, which is around not having to use like these nitrate um, fertilizers that harm the environment. So getting plants to produce their own nitrogen. And it's this very fundamental problem um, that's, you know, that's been around for as long as farming has been around. And I think watching, like watching him work in that field and talk about it. I mean, these were dinner table conversations, you know, growing up, it kind of puts into perspective, like the problem you're trying to solve, the people it will help. And then also the ways which by which you approach it, like very much a scientific method, doing things in a hypothesis driven way. But I think um, I think for, for me, probably the, the big thing about it was, you know, when you build something or when you try to solve a scientific problem, at the heart of it, you really have to keep in mind who you're going to benefit. And I think that's really the thing that for my dad and and both my parents actually, you know, makes them excited about going to work and helps them kind of put in the crazy hours that are required for this career. And I think for for me, that's um, a huge motivation as well, wanting to build things that that really help people. That's so special. Did you have siblings growing
0: up? Nope, just me. Just you. I love that. I love that. So, when did your interest really move towards math? Because you are a mathematician by training. When did that happen?
1: Yeah, I think it happened a little bit organically. Um, I think what I enjoyed about the subject, I I didn't really start to enjoy it until college, to be honest. Um, And what I liked about it was some of the fundamental, like it's a toolkit, right? Some of the fundamental rules um, of math allow you to understand other subjects. It's kind of like this basic language, kind of like a programming language in a way that helps explain how a lot of things work. And um, I think for me, the really big thing was working in a lab where we were able to understand and and sort of utilize these really fundamental equations that are used in in topology, which is like shapes and using that to basically predict the behavior of proteins um, and other like large molecules that play such a fundamental role in the human body um, and, and what, that we we couldn't previously visualize. And then once we use this toolkit and apply it to that, you actually get a really good understanding of what's going on. So I think viewing it as like this sort of underlying architecture behind um, everything in, in science is, is, really, is really what drove me um, to that field and feeling like if I can understand this, then I can apply it in multiple other areas and, and have an impact
0: saying that you have an impact is like the understatement of the century. I mean, already in your career, you've had, you've helped so many people. Can you speak to your work with children?
1: Yeah. So I worked specifically on designing drugs for pediatric cardiomyopathy. So that's heart disease in children. And really specifically, um, the patient population we were trying to treat were kids who have had cancer previously. And when you have cancer, and you're on chemotherapeutics a lot of the time you develop some minor cardiac damage and it's this it's it's just kind of this really you know sort of sad situation because these kids have already gone through so much right they've gone through and and made it through um like leukemia and other diseases like that and then they're still growing so their bodies aren't fully developed and then when you have like a, a problem, like a defect, like fibrosis or scar tissue in the heart that affects you your whole life. And so the thing that we were trying to solve was designing antifibrotics to treat those patients that could be like adjuvant therapy. So you could give it to the kids, um, when they were going through chemo or perhaps even afterwards, and you could help prevent or treat that, you know, re- refractory cardiac damage. And, um, and so, yeah, so the, the class of peptides that we were able to develop, were able to activate um, this receptor that is fundamentally antifibrotic. Um, it's called the angiotensin 2 type 2 receptor for anyone who is in the know in that field. And um, and it's actually very effective at, at preventing the development of scar tissue. Um, and so the, the goal there is to obviously, you know, treat those patients. And then down the line, um, I think that could be expanded to like much broader populations, like adults who have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and and some of those other diseases that affect much broader populations.
0: What was the transition or maybe what was the catalyst of the transition from working in that field to then developing Droplet?
1: It's kind of a funny story um, in the sense that it was very circuitous and and roundabout. So after developing um, this first class of drugs, I was at a conference in pediatric illnesses. And every year, um, some of these conference Hosts sort of pick a disease where there's not a ton of research or or knowledge um, in that field to sort of promote and highlight. And the disease that year that they were talking about was one I'd never heard of before. And it's this rare skin disease called epidermal lysis villosa, Um, and it's more colloquially known as butterfly skin syndrome. So, what happens in those patients is basically they're missing a gene that. Um, codes for like a collagen protein, basically that connects the skin to the tissue below. And in the absence of that gene and and that subsequent protein, the skin doesn't adhere to the tissue properly and it actually sloughs off. And it's, there's this horrible, painful disease. You know, there's different versions of it. There's like a a milder and a more dystrophic version. And in the dystrophic version, the mortality rate is actually very, very high. Um, And so I think for me working in, the drug development side of it, it was kind of shocking because my view of the world, and and it's an incorrect one, had always been, um, you know, you have a sick patient, people like me um, design drugs, clinicians like take them through clinical trials, and then they're ultimately used to, to serve patients. And that's just not true for a lot of disease categories, like these dermatological ones where we actually do know how to treat the disease, right? You need to give them the gene back and we're able to mass produce the gene, but we can't effectively re-deliver it into the tissue. And that was kind of the fundamental problem. And even now with um, really amazing technology like CRISPR-Cas9, you know that's dependent on viral vectors. Like you need a virus that will you know, injected into the right cell. And there's no viral vector that's specific for, for skin tissue, um, you know, then, and, and even now. So, um, so I think what I realized at the time was that delivery is this huge barrier and that's what got me really interested in solving sort of the drug delivery problem and what inspired um, me and my co-founder to, to actually develop droplet technology. So she, so my co-founder, Rathi is a, Um, chemical engineer, um, also MIT. um, And she worked in medical devices before this. So we developed Droplet kind of as like a kitchen table project initially. And, you know, the idea was we wanted to be able to deliver things into wounded skin. So it had to meet a bunch of parameters. You had to have deep delivery. It needed to be relatively painless. It couldn't impact skin healing. Um, And those were kind of, kind of the, the, core constraints that we went into in trying to develop it. And it took a very long time. It took several years and a lot, a lot, a lot of failed um attempts. And once we finally, once we finally got it, it took a lot longer to actually be able to do it um reproducibly and consistently every time. Um, and you know, we we basically built this technology and we realized pretty quickly that there's a ton of applications, right? There's Obviously, these rare diseases where um, we still have active work going on in, in the gene delivery side, but it takes a long time to get anything through to through the FDA. Um, we have active collaborations right now with Tufts Medical Center, where we do some really cool work around um diabetic foot ulcers and like slow healing and non-healing wounds and skin infections. Um, and some of that work's actually been published recently. And then, you know, there's just big sort of consumer application as well. It's everything from like hydrocortisone, um, you know, OTC products to, to skincare. And, um, we realized it made sense. Like once you have the technology, let's just put it out there in the world and, and have people benefit from it.
0: What was the timeline like between your previous career and actually launching droplet? And I love, I want to go into when you guys actually started to develop the, the company. Cause I know that that has a lot to do with your story, but what was the timeline in
1: between then? Yeah. So I, um, so we were working full full time, um, for the first, uh, like five years, um, you know, while Droplet was kind of developing in the background. And then, um, it wasn't until we had been able to produce it reliably, had gotten a patent and sort of met some of those other milestones that it made sense to, um, embark, you know, in, in like to do Droplet as its own business. So I would say probably around a four or five year overlap for me between those two things. Um, and then even for droplets. So, so if you think about what that timeline looks like, right, the technology has been in development for about nine years at this point. Um, and yeah, 2013 will be, will be 10 years or so. So it's definitely a long and slow process that requires a lot of patience.
0: I was going to ask you about your your level of patience because that is a long time. And I think there's a lot of conversations, not I think, I know there are a lot of conversations, especially in the product space and the entrepreneurial space, and there's this sense of urgency. And a lot of folks um think that things are just going to happen overnight. I wish. (laughs) Uh, So how do you how do you manage your patience? How do you um encourage yourself to have patience? What does that look like for you personally?
1: Well, I think personally, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. I'm not by nature, a very patient person. Um, and something that I, that I'm always sort of working, um, on, on getting better at, I think that you have to kind of set reasonable goals for yourself. So I know for me, it was, you know, if we don't meet this milestone, like if we meet this milestone in the next six months or in the next year, then like, we'll keep going. And if not, then, you know, this, this probably isn't going to work out and you should just kind of cut your losses and and move on. And I think that was, um, that's very much the way I've approached it for, um, for quite some time until the business really started to take off on its own. And at that point you're, you're, you have to just completely invest. And I think that's sort of, um, what's my backup plan logic kind of goes a little bit out the window, um, at that stage. But I think for the first few years of it, it was very much that it was, you know, well, we have to be able to build a reliable prototype or we have to be able to secure funding or we have to, um, be able to launch the product on the market, and if we're unable to do that, then you don't you don't really have a business. So I think, um, I think sort of tempering like the innate slowness in many ways of of being an entrepreneur, which is I, I don't think I agree with you. I don't think that's what people associate with with starting a business. I think people tend to think it happens overnight, but um, when you're in the thick of it, it feels often like a, a very slow process. And I think sort of tempering that with um, with saying okay, but but it's fine as long as like we hit this milestone by this date. You mentioned the phrase
0: "taking off." What was that actual moment for you of the business taking off, where you knew, "Oh, I do need to go all in on this."
1: Um, I think for me, it was it was around um, the time when we raised um, a fairly like you know a fairly significant round of capital, and at that point, it's not just you, right? You have employees you have investors, um, you have people who you owe things to. And I think for me, that was like a little bit of the switch. Like when it's just, when it's just you and like your friends building it, um, you know, there's always a feeling of, okay, well, if it doesn't work, there's always like, can always go back to academia. We can always go back and, you know, go back into biotech or something. Um, but I think once you have other people who are invested in it, it becomes a much, a much bigger responsibility. And at that point, um, you know, you, you just kind of have to go all in or, or not. What does your team look like?
0: What did actually know? What did your team look like in the beginning versus that <laughs> moment of it taking off? And what does it look like now? How did it transform during that time period?
1: Um, So around that time, you know, when we had first sort of secured funding and started to grow, it was a team of about um five or six. And I think every almost everyone was an engineer, even if they weren't working in an engineering capacity at the time or, or a scientist of some kind um by training. And it was like a very small core team. And I think that's when, you know, I started to really decided to really commit to it and and, and to grow it. Um now our team is um around, I think around 60 or so people. We have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have a bunch of of engineers. Um, you know, a pretty substantial R&D team. So we continue trying to innovate on the product and um, putting out new features and and people obviously are working on some of the deeper biotech stuff as well in the background. And then, you know, like our operations team is probably like the next big bucket. Um, They're people who are responsible for ordering electronics components and managing the supply chain, which is a huge thing right now um, and has been over the last couple of years. Uh, and then also people who are like kidding and like shipping out product. I mean, that's, that's a pretty significant um, job as well. And then we have this amazing customer care team um, that's mostly distributed workers. So they're, they're remote in different parts of the country. And that lets us cover like the East coast, you know, the early risers um, over here. And then obviously the late night people on the West coast as well. So we have really good coverage because of that. Um, And then we have a small, um, but really dedicated and hardworking marketing team as well, um, who put out all the content you'll see on our social channels and ads and that sort of thing. And of course, some of the other fundamental business operations like HR and finance um, and all of that as well. But I think what's been really great is we've been very, very lucky about some of the people we've been able to bring into the company, especially some of the other people in leadership positions, because obviously I'm new to this, right? I I haven't been in the consumer category before, but we do have people on the team who've kind of seen this happen at other businesses in the consumer space. And they just have this wonderful pattern recognition and bring a lot of just institutional knowledge to it. That's really, really helpful.
0: Where do you find such amazing people? And then how do you retain them?
1: Um, our investors have actually been really helpful at recruiting. I think one of the wonderful things about having a supportive and like a good investor in your company is they usually have really wonderful business networks and they've worked with a lot of really talented people over their career. So they've been able to make some wonderful recommendations um, around hiring. And I think we've also seen um, we've also seen a thing where somebody will join the team. Um, and then they'll say, you know, I have a friend who's also a really like great mechanical engineer, or my roommate is a, is a good data scientist. And so we've had a lot of sort of peer to peer referrals or pe- people bringing in their friends. And I think that's great because as long as they are, you know, able to do the job and they're hardworking and you have all of that, it also makes it more of an enjoyable work experience. People like working with their friends. So that's something that we, we do encourage, um, you know, to an extent at Droplet as well.
0: Walk us through the product, by the way, and marketing are both just so stunning. Like they're effective, but also so beautiful. It's such such a delicious product to look at, right? And to use, walk us through um, the type of person, you know, what your clientele would look like, who's the, not necessarily the ideal customer, but who are your customers? And then secondarily, walk us through the process of experiencing the droplet brand and using the droplet product.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so our customer base is actually surprisingly broad. Um, if you ask me, you know, sort of who I guess our target customer is, or who like our median customer is, I would, um, I would assume, you know, primarily somebody who's primarily women. Um, you tend to see more consumption of, of this category among female consumers. Um, and someone who is in an urban area and probably, you know, mid thirties to mid forties, like that would be, that would be my guess. And we certainly have a very large number of customers who fit that profile. Um, but we also have people who are, um, quite young, like who are in their twenties, who are using it for acne. Um, you know, like we have blemish treatments and stuff like that, and they find it really helpful and um, people who are in their 60s and 70s who love the product. So I think we've been really lucky in that many of our customers um, are, are quite broad in terms of age, in terms of demographics, um, you know, and in terms of sort of what they're using droplet to treat. So I think that that's something that, you know, we, we kind of continue trying to make sure that we build products that sort of apply to large swatches of the population that aren't like super, super niche. Um, but, but yeah, it's definitely a much broader base. than I would have initially guessed when we we'd see when we first launched the product, um, in terms of the the product experience, we've tried to keep it really simple. Um, you know, you just have the device and we're on a podcast and I'm like showing you the the device. You have just this like little, um, device that looks like an egg or an avocado, as we call it here, and you just put um, a pre-filled capsule into it and press a button. And it basically puts out this high-speed aerosol, you know, with micronized droplets that have a better penetration profile into your skin. And you can just kind of use it across your whole face. So it's a really simple um, experience out of the box. We do have the ability to personalize it or customize it. So there's a paired app. um, It's on iPhone. It's about to come out on Android. And what that allows you to do is take the device and put it into different treatment modes. So you can be hyper-specific about what you want to target. So it can be anything from um, treating like a blemish. So we we have a blemish mode that's really popular. We have like an under eye mode that's popular. Um, And then people kind of use it, you know, off like quote off label, um, for things like, uh, dry skin, we've had a lot of people who use it for like psoriasis or minor, like atopic dermatitis, um, in some of those more treatment modes, like that's not what they're built for, but the people are using it and benefiting from it, which is, which is kind of cool.
0: How many different types of capsules do you have and offer currently?
1: We have six right now on the market. Um, so we have four that are kind of like what we call a daily treatment line. And there are things that are kind of good for your skin. We, we think about them internally a little bit like vitamins. So they are um, collagen. It has vitamin C. It has argireline, which is like a peptide alternative to Botox um, and a little bit of vitamin E oil in the form of rose oil. So that's our most popular product. And it's just Generally good for moisturizing and like really deeply hydrating skin, and you get kind of this plumpness and, and people really love that experience. Um, we have a retinol, which is once again a very popular ingredient. Um, and the nice thing about it is you get a really good distribution of the retinol into your skin. So you don't get that redness and peeling. You get um, you get the benefits from it without that break-in period, which people really like. A glycolic acid product that's an exfoliator that people use a lot for blemishes, and then a acid, which is um for for hyperpigmentation. So it has like arbutin and niacinamide in there. So it's for hyperpigmentation and dark spots. And then people also use it for redness or rosacea. Um, so those are kind of our four daily lines. And then we have, um, kind of a fun capsule we just launched, which is a lip plumping capsule. And we actually launched it because, um, we were inspired by, um, one of the newest members of our marketing team. She's like in her early twenties and she joined the team and we had lunch together. And I said, what should we, put out there that we don't have. And she said a lip plumping product, um, just like no hesitation. So, um, so we built it and and it actually is, is doing really well. And it's kind of cool cause it lets you customize how much you want your lips plumped um, and people really like that. And then we launched um, last year as well, a growth factors product. And that's really meant to be a PRP at home sort of um, replacement. And it's like, we ship it to you on ice to make sure that all the ingredients stay stable and so on. So, so those are kind of the six products we have right now. And they cover this big range from, you know, in clinic type treatments like PRP to more fun stuff. That's cosmetic like lips to your daily use line. How many products do you have in the works currently? I'd say at any given time, we probably have four or five formulations that are in development, but in order to actually get released and and um, become a product, they have to meet a pretty high bar. They have to, um, you know, they have to be stable, they have to go through a couple studies, including clinical studies, um, which are IRB approved and, you know, 40 person and done by a third party, and they have to meet a certain bar. So obviously, you can have dermatologists and experts who are grading it and saying, oh, yeah, you see like a 30% improvement or 50% improvement. But then it also has to be really obvious to people who don't work in the industry. So we really want things that are, that are giving you a really clear and obvious benefit.
0: Are there any products in development that are almost ready to come out? None that I'm sure you can speak of, but I'm curious as to how frequently maybe you care to launch new products.
1: I think our cadence is probably going to be about two products a year. We have a few in development right now. Um, We have a under eye product, um, which is basically productizing that under eye mode on the capsule to help treat hollow and dark under eyes. We have a whole like regimen that's in development, um, around treating hormonal, um, pimples, which will be kind of interesting. Um, obviously these all have to go through, through testing with, you know, 40 people before we'd, we'd release it. And then we have some really interesting sort of high-tech stuff that's in early development right now, um, including stuff with, you know, these skin ingredients that are just starting to go into the public awareness, like exosomes, um you know, we were a little ahead of the curve, I think in some ways with, with growth factors. And I think some of these really new cutting edge active ingredients are super exciting, not just because of what they can do for your skin, but because of what they can do, um, like long-term on a molecular level with aging. I'm very
0: interested in the under eye product. When that one launches, you have a customer in me. <laughs> I'm so excited <laughs> about that. Um, awesome. you met when you and I first met, you spoke very highly of your advisory board. I'd like to firstly ask you, how did you form them? How did you form your board? And secondly, um, what do all of their roles look like? How many folks do you have? What are their expertise, et cetera?
1: Yeah, we, um, well, we formed them. It's almost on a case-by-case basis. Um, in some cases, we, they were people who we had, who had been just really great, um like early testers of the technology back when we were just starting out, and before we were even a company, like we had given them early prototypes, and they had um, just been able to provide feedback and testing. And we see that especially among some of the dermatologists we work with. Um, you know, we work with academics, um, both who do who collaborate with us on the medical applications, as well as people who are just really, really well um, well versed in that field and provide really great insight. And I think in some of those cases, we um we emailed them um back in the day and said, Hey, we have this really cool technology. We see that you're an expert in, you know, diabetic foot ulcers. Would you be willing to try it out? And they tried and, and liked it and saw the benefits and, and it kind of took off from there. Um, and then, you know, we also have a couple of people who are on like the marketing or operation side who've just done it before and they've seen um. They've seen a lot in their, in their like 20, 30 year career and are just this amazing resource when you're, um, you know, when you're in the thick of it and you're like, I, you know, this is a problem I have. I'm not really sure what to do. And they're like, okay, let's just break it down. And, um you know, I've seen this before and, and this is what I'd recommend. And that's been invaluable, especially in some of the more chaotic times we've had in the last few years with COVID and, and so on. Speaking
0: of COVID, excellent segue, because <laughs> I was going to ask you about this next. You called your company, a COVID company when you and I first yeah. spoke. Yeah. And I would love for you to share what it was like really, really leaning into the company during slash on the cusp of COVID and what decisions you made to kind of, you know, prepare yourself for the next phases. Cause it is a fascinating story
1: and the people need to hear. <laughs> yeah. I think what we were talking about uh, before was around supply chain. And I was saying that um, that my co-founder that Rathi and I basically made a decision, I think in February or early March of, of 2020, right. When there was news about a virus, um, to go ahead and order enough electronics components for our first, um, few hundred to a thousand devices. And we kind of, um, you know, it was one of those things where we're, we're sitting in the office and just kept giving these news alerts about it. And we're like, should we just, should we just order this? It's, it's, you know, thousands of dollars. It was the biggest, um, it was actually the biggest single bill we'd ever like done in one afternoon in the history of the company at the time. Um, and I think, you know, it was it was very much one of those things where it was a little bit of a, a paranoid impulse um, and we, we ended up doing it. And I think if we hadn't done that, we would not have a company today because shortly thereafter, big parts of um, the supply chain were completely shut down or they were completely gone. And um, we were really, really fortunate because we had thousands of just raw electronics components that we needed to build our, our PCBs, our boards, our circuit boards, um, like sitting in our, in our site in Boston. And that was probably the, the single most impulsive decision we we made that I'm I'm very, very glad we did in hindsight. You say
0: impulsive, but what was that timeline of Oh my goodness, this is happening globally to pulling the trigger and and making it happen
1: about 3 hours.
0: It's insane in yeah. the best way. I mean that is like <laughs> that is like entrepreneurship 101 of, you know, having to make these big decisions at the drop of a hat.
1: Right, right. Um and probably one of the most stressful decisions we've ever made because, you know, you're used to um you're used to spending a few thousand dollars here and there up until the history, like in the history of the company. And then all of a sudden to be spending tens of thousands of dollars on electronics components. And like the, the design might change, right? Some of these components might get obsoleted. Um, and I, I'm very glad we made that decision, but it was, it was definitely one that was, um, you know, very, very impulse driven at the time. Regarding the design of the product, was
0: it fully fleshed out before you bought all those parts? Like, did you know exactly what you needed or were you kind of also guessing on that too?
1: We were guessing on a few of the components. um, And there's a few things there where you're like, well, if this particular piece changes, right? Because it still has to go through some testing. Like if it fails testing and we have to change that, then you're just going to be out um, for that component. And sometimes, you know, anyone who's who's worked on circuit boards knows one change can require everything else to change. So it was... um, you know, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely a risk at the time. Um, but, but one that ultimately worked out for us. And I think if you talk to any entrepreneur, I think everyone has stories like that. Absolutely. You also
0: mentioned this phrase, which I'm going to absolutely borrow. It's called (laughs) healthy paranoia. Yes. Yes. Healthy Uh, paranoia. That is incredible. Speak more to that.
1: Um, I think that, I think that you, in many ways, and I think maybe this is also a little bit of a side effect of trying to launch a product um, during a pandemic, and then you know growing while there's a lot of sort of global shifts happening both in the startup space and the consumer space. I think that we we tend to operate um, with a little bit of healthy paranoia, so it's like you know you you we really try to think of things in terms of risk mitigation in a lot of ways, which is when you're making um, a big decision, whether it's like a big engineering change or um, a marketing decision, you think about what, what could go wrong. Um, and then you try to implement steps to, to mitigate those particular risks. And I think one thing we've seen um, in the last few years is sometimes things are really unexpected. So, so for example, we had initially planned on launching our product and dermatology clinics. Like that had been our whole business model. We were going to sell to dermatologists and people in that industry tend to buy all of their inventory in Q1. So we're going to launch in 2020, um, in Q2, Q3, or Q3. And what ended up happening is like all those clinics closed. So all these people where we were pretty close to finalizing contracts, they just, they just disappeared overnight. Um, and we ended up having to, um, to, to try to figure out what to do next. And we made the decision to just sell direct to consumer online. And, um, Built a really janky website, like a, you know, the first version of droplet.io was, was not, not very good. Um and and we started, um, we started putting the product out there. And we got, you know, we had people who experienced it and liked it and started telling their friends and family about it. And that's a big part of how we how we grew in the initial initial months. And then of course, um, once you kind of had proof, right, that people liked the experience and this was a viable thing we continued to we grew at the marketing team. We hired people to actually make a, a better website that wasn't coded by me. Um, and that actually had some design to it um, and, and kind of grew and kind of grew from there. But I think, I think a lot of the time you just kind of have to just go out and do things um, even if they're, they're not, even if they're not ideal.
0: We also spoke about um, the concept of perfection and how a lot of folks might have, you know, analysis paralysis or wait a little too long before launching something. I really respect and love that you just were like, okay, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to build this website and we're going to put it to market. You know, let's completely shift our, our business model completely from wholesale to direct to consumer. What is your marker personally of a, this is good enough. Let's just put it out.
1: I think this is probably like the, the scientists in me talking, but I think it's, um, it's like functional, it's like function over form in many ways. So if it works, like if it does a thing it's designed to do, um, it's okay to, to put out. And if it doesn't impact like the customer, um, if it doesn't fundamentally impact the customer experience, it's, it's okay. I think those are kind of the, the two like, um, benchmarks for that. So for example, a website that perhaps, um, doesn't have the most like appealing pictures. If somebody buys a product from that website and the product is good and it works really well, it 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 shouldn't it shouldn't be a big deal. So it's okay to put it out there. Um, that being said, I think that there's a, a second point of view which I very much respect, which is around wanting things to go out in the world in a way that's like fully encapsulated and um and and well designed. I think there's a huge amount of value to that. So I think given the opportunity, like like we absolutely should do it. But I think when you're in extenuating circumstances, um, you know, such as the one we were in at the time, you just have to make, you just kind of have to make a decision and you have a couple of bad options. You have to choose the one that's ultimately the best for the business at the time.
0: That's such valuable advice. Do you still have an element of your business that does wholesale that works with dermatologists or are you guys completely direct to consumer now?
1: we're completely D2C right now we do have dermatology offices where they like they have droplets like in the office and they'll recommend like patients go to our site and purchase from it but um but no we don't we don't sell to dermatology practices at the moment although it's something we are very much contemplating for later this year and early next
0: for those who might not be familiar, selling to selling B2B versus B2C are two completely separate business models. They're two different beasts. We do both of them in my company and they operate very uniquely. It's a, di- a very different um process on all levels. The product is the same, right? But the process by which you get your um, product to your you know, end consumer are very different. I have so much respect for the fact that you guys completely. Went from one direction to another, essentially at the drop of a hat, out of necessity. But um, it's just—it's so. I applaud you. It's very refreshing to hear that, and I really applaud you and your found your co-founder and in your entire team for making that happen. And I think it's really wonderful because, you know, now your relationships with your direct to consumer customers, you know, can inform the other products that you come out with. I'm sure that 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 feedback is I'm sure invaluable to you.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I think, um, so I actually, I think our second most popular product is a regimen product that we have called radiant detox and we mix and match a few capsules. And it's, it's actually funny because we never would have built that if we were, a B2B business. And, and the reason we built it actually is we started getting maybe a few months after we launched, we started getting these before and afters from our customers. And at this point we had clinical photos, right? Like from our trials that were, they were pretty good, like very good before and afters. And we started getting these pictures from our customers that honestly looked Photoshopped. We were like, okay, well that's just better lighting, or she's just wearing, you know, some foundation or something. And we didn't pay a ton of attention to it until they kept coming. And then finally we were like, okay, something, I think there's something to this. And we started reaching out to them and asking them what they were doing. And they were actually combining our capsules in a way that we had never anticipated. They were um, doing collagen in the morning and then some combination of retinol and glycolic at night, which is like kind of an at-home version of a ZO peel, which is a very popular um, peel that's used in in derm practices and med spas. And they had kind of hacked it together at home and their skin looked amazing. It was way better than individual capsules um, on their own. And we ended up making it a regimen, and it's gone through its own set of trials and and so on. But it's things like that. We 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 would never have done it if you were selling B two B because there's no way we would get that feedback. So that I think incredible. your point, yeah, I think to your point, like that direct relationship with with the customers is so valuable. And I think the other thing is, you know, we we hadn't done um we hadn't done B two B before we launched Droplet, but we also hadn't done direct to consumer. And so I think in some ways, like you don't fully internalize the difference between those two business models if you haven't done either one of them so i think in hindsight if you suddenly told me i had to go be a b2b business model like a business owner i would i would freeze right now um but at the time we didn't know we didn't really know what we were getting into so it didn't feel like as hard a decision as as it would today which is um a little bit of it's a little funny
0: sometimes a lot of times in entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. ignorance is bliss.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would agree.
0: <laughs> the less, you know, the more you're like, oh sure, we can do this. No problem. Yeah, exactly. What has been your guidance's method in growing your, your customer base and growing your, you know, loyal consumers?
1: Um, I think it's been, I think it's been kind of two separate things you know, what part of it is like marketing, marketing strategy, right? So for us making sure that dermatologists and estheticians, people who are really in the know about skincare understood and would endorse our product was really, really key to it. Um, you know, tactically meta and, um, like Facebook and Instagram are, are pretty big channels for us in terms of awareness and reaching people. Um, but I think also trying to develop products in the last year, because we've only been on market for two years, but the last year trying to develop products that are directly addressing things that our customers told us they want to have, I think was like, is a big part of it as well. So making sure that people who are bought into our system feel heard. Um, You know, for example, I mentioned we launched the app last year that lets you put the device into different modes, making sure it's backwards compatible. So if you were like A supporter of droplet from day one you're still getting all the features of somebody who joined um two days ago and and trying to um trying to take care of like our early supporters while continuing to put out new products um to to attract a broader range of people what are you excited about
0: with droplet currently and for the future
1: um a lot actually i think probably it's it's Two separate areas. I'm really excited about the technology's ability um, and potential in, like, the medical sector, and I think that's something that we have active research and R and D on. Um, and you know, our partners at Tufts Medical Center just actually got a pretty big DOD grant to continue that work. So we're we're really, I'm I'm personally really really excited about what the future holds in that area, and I think with in the existing business on the consumer front, I think that there's some very cool um, formulations that are in R&D. I think like the under eye one is cool. I think some of the work we're trying to do around like real, really, um, really treating like the molecular mechanisms of skin aging um, on a biological level. I think that's really exciting and something where I think, you know, you're seeing it in the consumer category, but it makes a lot of sense to think about it really as a skin health product, not a beauty product, um, and kind of moving, you know, kind of continuing to build the message in that direction as well.
0: Do you see Droplet creating more devices, more, more types of devices, or is it more the capsules and the ingredients that go into the existing device?
1: Well, we have our Gen 2 coming out, um, in a few months and that's going to be, um, you know, that's going to be a similar form factor to the device it will have the same fundamental features but obviously we'll have a little bit more um in the way of in the way of like programmability it'll be a little more eco-friendly there's a few things like that 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 we're building but in terms of like fundamentally doing things aside from like that core delivery technology i think that's that's a little bit down the line for us i think we're we'll probably see more happen in the next couple years are things like uh, delivery into the whole body. Um, you could do that with the existing device, but building like formulations, right. That are more appropriate for like your knees or your, or your neck, um, or pants or, or whatever other area you want to treat. Um, and then also hair restoration, I think is really interesting and something that we're doing some work on and, and exploring the ability to deliver into the scalp more effectively. I think, especially for, for women with, um, especially people who have long hair um, you know, you, you want to actually get into the scalp, not just have it sit on top of your, your hair. So That's, trying to adapt the tech for that. That is so
0: cool and interesting. What does a day in the life, a week in the life look like for Mata v? Um, It's a
1: little bit, it's a little bit of controlled chaos. Um, You know, I personally work on everything, um, within the company ranging from, you know, and I think anybody, any, any founder is, it's probably a very similar story, but you, you work a little bit on, you know, what's, what's happening with the marketing. You work with the finance team, you keep in the weeds with engineering. Um, in my case, I spent a lot of time on some of the biology and formulations and like product and R and D development, um, partially because it's, it's a passion area of mine. And also, um, because it's, it's, it just has like someone has to do it. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's fairly, it's fairly long and kind of irregular work hours, especially because we sometimes have meetings with people who are in Europe and people who are on the West coast. So your days can be, can be long. And I think part of it is trying to carve out little bits of time for yourself, um, in ways that are atypical in the middle of the day for me, running is very much stress relief. So I try to go and do that, um, as often as I can, if I'm lucky, it will be five days a week. Um, it's not always the case. And, uh, you know, aside from that, making time for, for relationships, like, um, like your friends and and family and, and just carving out a little bit of time for hobbies is, is essential to just maintaining your sanity and being even keeled, especially, you know, with startups, you never know what's going to happen next. So, um, you need little pockets of, of respite besides that. What do your current hobbies include? Um, so I, I'm an avid runner, as I mentioned before. Um, I read, I listen to a lot of podcasts actually, um, when I'm, you know, just out and about and and doing chores or or riding the train. Um, and then in when the weather's nice, which is like two months of the year in, in Boston, I do like to spend time, um, and garden. My parents, um, live, maybe like 45 minutes away. So they have a vegetable garden. So I go over there and do chores in the summer um, and, and do that. But I also um, have like a little patio garden that I, I tend to as well. Um, and then, you know, aside from that, just kind of the usual stuff, spending time with with friends and family. I have a really good network of, um, of friends from like college and grad school who happen to be kind of local to me. So I've been fortunate in that way as well. That's amazing. What does the future
0: of Droplet look like short-term and long-term?
1: I think, um, in the next year or so, you're going to see, um, you're going to just see more features, like the ability to do more targeted treatments, um, with the app, the ability to, um, have a few more formulations that are out there that can provide a little bit more guidance and, um, and sort of regimens for our users, So I think you're gonna see basically like a more well-rounded and 360 product portfolio from us in the next year. Um, And I think in the longer term, you're going to see um, us expand into other other categories. I mean, the goal ultimately for us is we want Droplet to be the de facto way by which you get things into your skin. Um, And we think about it, we we use the electric toothbrush analogy a lot at at the company, right? the electric toothbrush is, is what most people use today. It just, it's, it's the same function as the basic toothbrush, but it does it better. And I think it's the same thing here. We want droplet to be like the equivalent of that. You, you have to put, you put things on your skin or on your face and you just use droplet to do that instead of your hands.
0: That's amazing. How can we support you and where can we find you?
1: Um, you can find us on our Instagram handle is, um, droplet Inc. And, um, if you, yeah, you could follow us if you have any ideas for products, um, or suggestions on formulations or modes you'd like to see. We'd love to get ideas from people and we hope that you have a chance to try out the product.
0: Madhavi, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and your wisdom and, um, I'm just so inspired listening to your story. Thank you so much for being here on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You
0: are so welcome. And we'll have to have you back when you guys um, launch Gen 2 and your new products as well to celebrate those. Sounds good. Thank you. Wow, you guys, that interview was just incredible. A huge thank you to Madhavi for coming on the show. Another big thank you to our hosts at Dash Radio and producers at Island City Media. If you like this episode, you can listen to it again and again on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please leave a review so we can continue bringing you the people and conversations that you love, just like Madhavi and Droplet. Lastly, if you want to connect with me offline, you can find me at MarinCostello.com and MarinCostello Radio on Instagram. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you next week with another amazing guest on MarinCostello Radio.